Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan's highest court will receive a major shakeup at the end of the year as Chief Justice Bridget McCormick announced her plans to retire this week. But what will this change mean for the law and politics of our state? Rick Pluta and Lauren Gibbons join us to discuss the fallout. Then we'll check in with Free Press reporter David Jesse to find out why it appears some are trying to push Michigan State University President Samuel Stanley Jr. from his position. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. These days, when we talk about the Supreme Court, most people are referring to the United States Supreme Court. The set of justices in that majority have been under the microscope recently for their decision to overturn Roe, amongst many other decisions. But even before then, there have been rumblings about changing the structure of the U.S. Supreme Court, either by adding term limits, seats, or altering other aspects of its structure entirely. However, even in Michigan, the court that receives much less attention is our own state Supreme Court. But that court still has a lot of power. They ultimately make decisions about a variety of laws in the state and influence the lives of millions of Michiganders. That's why it turned heads when Chief Justice Bridget McCormick announced her retirement from the court before the end of the year. After 10 years on the bench, including a few as the Chief Justice, McCormick will leave her post and give Governor Gretchen Whitmer the opportunity to appoint someone in her place. To explain Justice McCormick's legacy, including her record on the bench, why she decided to leave, and what this means for Michigan's politics, we have two great guests with us. Rick Pluta is the senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, and he joins us now. Rick, welcome back to Detroit Today. And we also have with us Lauren Gibbons, a reporter covering Michigan politics for Bridge Michigan. Lauren, welcome back to Detroit Today as well. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, I'm glad to have you both here as I want to really get started with this because the state Supreme Court is such an important institution and often I think gets a little bit overlooked. So before we get into why Justice McCormick decided to leave, uh, Rick, if you're with us right now, can you talk about uh, her time on the court, uh, before the time on the court before Justice McCormick uh, landed there and before she was chief justice? What was it like on the court then? Oh, I, I, I think that that's such um, important context because the uh, court was considered to be very partisan, uh, very divided, that the tone of the uh, opinions that were issued from the court, both the minority and the majority opinions, were uh, very acrimonious. And uh, she did a lot of work to uh, mend fences and uh, make it a more collegial uh, court. And she did a lot of uh, that work with um, Justice uh, Robert Young, who um, was chief justice for uh, a while, too. And they had sort of this, uh, you know, witty rapport that uh, they would engage uh, both on the court and uh, just in uh, public appearances together. So that was job one for her when uh, she came on the court and her work as chief justice as well. You know, when we were talking about the time before her getting on the court, even though the position of justice is technically nonpartisan, again, that was a time where we, right, we would have four and five person Republican majorities, and it was still seemingly acrimonious. acrimonious. Can you tell us how Justice McCormick landing on the bench led to uh, that seed change that you were mentioning into uh, where we're at now with a 4-3 Democratic bench? 
yeah, well, I think that we need to set the stage a little bit uh, during the Governor John Engler years when he headed the Republican Party that uh, Republicans ran uh, and, and Republican nominated justices. You're right, they're on the nonpartisan part of the ballot, but um, they are nominated at party conventions. Um, ran on the idea that the judiciary in general and uh, the Michigan Supreme Court in particular um, had become increasingly uh, partisan. Quote, activist uh, judges, activist just, uh, justices were the uh, target of uh, uh, Republican judicial campaigns. And so um, there was an effort by uh, Bridget McCormick to kind of uh, – quell that sort of talk and make it seem like instead of uh, justices um, only representing particular partisan interests, that uh, they were there to uh, follow the law, even if there were differences on uh, exactly what that meant. Do you have any examples of opinions that were rendered, again, uh, with that Republican majority uh, prior to where we get to in this point in time that would give listeners an idea of that happening? Ooh, you're asking me to uh, dig back into the, um, you know, to dig back into the uh, memory banks. But uh, certainly there were some uh, education cases. Um, You know, elections always are, you know, just, just by their nature, uh, very, very uh, partisan, but uh, without being able to refer to a uh, particular case, I would uh, say that there were some constitutional interpretations regarding things like uh, schools that would certainly qualify. Yeah, certainly. And uh, before we get to you, Lauren, I just want to have one more question, uh, Rick. In terms of legacy, you already touched on it, uh, how she brought fostered a collegial atmosphere and was able to bring folks together on the bench. But what do you think uh, the greatest legacy for Justice McCormick will be for her time on the bench? I don't think that you would be able to to discuss that without looking at probably the most uh, recent consequential decision from the Supreme Court, which was the effort to keep uh, two ballot proposals uh, off the ballot, um, arguing that there were structural deficiencies in um, the petition drives regarding voting rights and uh, abortion rights, that they gathered enough signatures, but um, there were questions regarding whether or not the uh, petitions themselves were uh, facially valid, and uh, the Supreme Court in um, separate orders said that, uh, no, that people signed these petitions in record numbers, and they deserved to uh, go on the ballot. And that cemented that principle in uh, Michigan uh, jurisprudence, even though it might seem intuitive that, um, you know, now it's uh, there in uh, Supreme Court precedent to affect future elections. Yeah, it is a very, very important uh, position. I want to bring you in now, Lauren, as you've also been covering this and have a lot of insight into what's going on in the bench as we discuss Chief Justice Bridget McCormick's decision to retire at the end of the year, leave her position on the bench, a 4-3 Democratic bench currently giving uh, Gretchen Whitmer an opportunity to appoint her replacement. But uh, Lauren, do we have any insight on why the chief justice decided to retire at this moment? Yeah, we started seeing, uh, we started seeing yesterday that uh, she is expected to join the American Arbitration Association International Center for Dispute Resolution. Uh, So essentially uh, going into the Um, going into a different career path here um, is what it looks like. And so she plans on, you know, as, as uh, was mentioned, stay through um, the end of this year and then start on that new journey next year. And um, I did want to really quick jump in on that last question you asked Rick. One, one thing that I think is really interesting about her tenure as chief justice, she served as chief justice during the coronavirus uh, when that started coming through and, uh, a lot more um, state court proceedings are digitized now. I think that's a pretty big uh, change yeah. from previous, uh, you know, previous courts. Uh, you know, now you can often just 
click a button and tune in to Supreme Court proceedings where you previously would have had to drive into Lansing and sit uh, sit in the audience there. So I think that's a really big, uh, really big aspect of her legacy to point out as well. L- Lauren, the amount of gasoline and miles and man hours that were spent just driving to and from Lansing, I, you, you, you wouldn't even imagine <laughs> it. But that's that's too inside baseball. What I really want to get into is how this retirement is going to affect all of us in Michigan. And uh, specifically politically, will there be any uh, political fallout from this, Lauren, that you can see? Well, um, you know, as as Rick said, this is, uh, you know, while justices are technically nonpartisan, they're nominated by their parties. uh, McCormick's replacement will uh, be nominated by Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, so it's unlikely to change the current balance of the court. Now, what will be interesting to see is what the results of the November election are. Um, you know, we've got two seats up for grabs, uh, you know, one incumbent uh, Democratic nominated justice and one Republican nominated justice. Um, you know, there's two other uh, two other potential contenders in the mix there. And, um so it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether uh, the November elections change the dynamic or change how those numbers work out. Uh, if, you know, if a Democrat picks up a Republican seat, for example, that could, you know, b- further bolster the Democratic majority. Whereas if, uh, you know, if a Republican picks up or if the numbers remain the same, um, you know, that that would really potentially make this more interesting. Um, if if both of the incumbents win re-election, um, the uh, the Democratic edge would remain four to three. Yeah, we're speaking with uh, Rick Bluta and Lauren Gibbons about uh, the Chief Justice Bridget McCormick leaving, deciding to leave at the end of the year her position as Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. Why it matters and how it impacts us here, as well as taking a look at her legacy here on Detroit Today. And Rick, it sounded like you had a point there, so I'm going to let you in right now. If you did have something you were trying to say, well. I mean, we do pay a lot of attention to the cases and the decisions that are before the court, and and I would argue appropriately so. But I think getting to uh, Lauren's point that the administrative functions of the court are really, really, really uh, important. It's the top court in the state, and it makes the rules that govern every courtroom um, in the state and, you know, also things like attorney discipline and judicial discipline. And one of the things that um, the court is starting to engage in under Bridget Mary McCormick is um, access to civil justice, you know, basically lawsuits, uh, divorce and custody cases, uh, things, you know, like that. And uh, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, we're all very familiar with uh, when people are uh, face criminal charges that they have a right to an attorney. And if defendants cannot afford an attorney, then the state appoints one. And there are issues, you know, with that system. But that right does not extend to civil cases. And that can be an issue when, you know, you're engaged in a uh, custody fight, for example. And, um, you know, and and, and the stakes are high. Uh, We're also talking about landlord-tenant disputes and and, and things like that. And the court, uh, you know, has become more and more engaged in trying to find ways where in civil disputes that people can also find uh, ways to get uh, counsel and uh, legal advice. And that's something that Bridget McCormick, the court under Bridget McCormick got rolling. And uh, we'll see where that, uh, you know, where that goes in the future. And obviously, it's very, very consequential for a lot of people. The structural changes are very important. And what you mentioned in terms of how uh, the courts interact with people, not just criminally, but civilly, are super important also. But as we discuss this uh, monumental change that's going to happen on the state Supreme Court, has there been any word, Rick, about uh, potential successors or potential nominees that could uh, rise to the occasion or be appointed by Governor Whitmer to uh, take over for that two-year term until another election would happen for her seat? Well, I mean, Gretchen Whitmer um, is an attorney that uh, she served on an interim basis as the uh, Ingham County prosecutor. So 
she knows the law and she knows the system and will uh, have a, a, a pretty intimate under, understanding of what's at stake. That uh, you know, State Representative Kara uh, Bolton is the Democratic Party uh, nominee to run for the Supreme Court in um, you know, not including uh, Justice Bernstein. So she would potentially be on the list if. She doesn't um, win her uh, challenger's race to uh, get on the court. Uh, I haven't heard any other names. Maybe uh, Lauren, uh, you know, Lauren is uh, more tuned into that than uh, than I am. But you know, obviously, the uh, governor is interested in uh, diversity on the court, which was in in the judicial system, which uh, is also something Brett that uh, Bridget McCormick has been involved in, and she seemed to drop a hint that she would be interested in uh, seeing maybe someone of color, maybe uh, another female uh, placed on the court by the governor. Lauren, I give you the opportunity. Have you heard any names of potential uh, uh, successors? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a little early. Uh, I I haven't heard too much, um, but uh, you know, concurring with Rick, there, Kyra Harris Bolden um, is the Democratic nominee who's not the incumbent, and I would imagine she would be pretty high up on the list if she uh, if she does not uh, win a seat through the November election. Um, it, the Democrats have really been um, focused. Uh, you saw in the last couple of election cycles, Democrats have really been. Um, you know, trying to, you know, raise funding and really um, put the Supreme Court uh, in the minds of voters. Uh, last uh, last election cycle, I looked into this a little bit with the mailers. Um, uh, the uh, Democratic-backed groups uh, hit the Michigan Supreme Court races really hard for a lot of the reasons you mentioned at the top of the show, there's a lot of pretty consequential decisions. So I would expect to see this be a pretty... Um, pretty tough fight. Uh, they'll probably put up a big fight, uh, obviously a little harder to knock out an incumbent. But um, I, I do think that that could be, you know, a factor as we go into November, you know, whether whether she wins or not um, in what Whitmer ultimately decides. Yeah, I really appreciate you know, those. Go ahead. Uh, I appreciate those points, Lauren, but go ahead, Rick. I was going to say, one of the things that will not be part of this that we're used to on the federal level, especially for U.S. Supreme Court nominations, is the spectacle of confirmation hearings, because the way the system works in Michigan is the governor places someone on the court, and that person remains on the court um, and has to um, seek affirmation in the next election. So instead of the Michigan State Senate, for example, uh, performing the uh, confirmation function as you know the Senate does in uh, so many other appointment situations, that it is the voters who serve that uh, confirmation function. We're speaking about the decision from Chief Justice Bridget McCormick to retire at the end of the year here on Detroit Today with Rick Pluta and Lauren Gibbons. But we also want to speak with you about this. Do you pay attention to what goes on on the state Supreme Court level? Do you keep track of their decisions? And uh, did you have any particular reaction to the news of Justice McCormick's decision to leave the court? What do you think this will mean for our politics, if anything at all? Be part of the conversation and give us a call. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And we will work you into the conversation. Coming up, I will continue this conversation with our guests. Get to your notes on Twitter as well. I do have a question for both of you about how our justices make it to the bench. But I'll tell you that on the other side as we continue on Detroit Today. This 
This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson as we talk about an institution that uh, we don't talk about that much, although recently it has been getting more uh, acknowledgement. Uh, the state Supreme Court, as Chief Justice Bridget McCormick announced, she will be retiring at the end of the year. Truly significant decision for someone with 10 years on the bench and uh, certainly a, a large influence on the institution. And we want to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019. Do you pay attention to the Supreme Court? Uh, what did you think when you heard about the news? And uh, do you think this will even matter for our politics in Michigan? Moving to Twitter right now, we have a comment from Big Neo who says, it would be nice if the friend of the court could get overhauled. There are still too many rules in place that unfairly lean towards mothers that leaves the fathers treated as second-class citizens. So, specific instance there uh, that Big Neo is referring to. But the state Supreme Court does have a lot to do with the rules that all the courts follow in Michigan. So that is significant. Uh, I mentioned to both of you, as I'm here with Rick Pluta and Lauren Gibbons discussing this situation, that uh, when I was thinking back about how our justices made it on their way to the bench, you know, we have three Republican uh, justices or justices that were put up by Republicans. They're all Rick Snyder appointees. Well, you know, some have gone through reelection. They were all appointed initially by Rick Snyder, whereas the four Democrats or the ones that were put up by Democrats all made their way onto the bench initially by election. Does that give us any insight into what we can expect from the elections coming forward or how the uh, the uh, the justices or the, the outlook of the court uh, will look moving forward as the elections continue? I'll give that to you first, Lauren. Yeah, I think uh, I think it kind of just depends on um, on who is leaving and what governor is in place uh, when those uh, when those openings emerge. Uh, as I mentioned uh, before the break, there, um, this is an issue that Democrats have been putting a lot of effort and money into um, over the last couple of election cycles. Uh, as as it, frankly, there are so many, um, you know court decisions that uh, that are pretty key to, you know, if there's a majority on the court, um, that could make the difference whether they were uh, nominated by Democrats or Republicans. So that's something they've been focusing on a lot as well. Um, I think we'll certainly see uh, Republicans put up a put up a fight here. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of in terms of uh, appointments, uh, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of openings uh, during the Snyder administration that came up, and you know having that appointment status does uh, you know make you an incumbent on the ticket, um, and and we have see, it is an interesting uh, an interesting point to make that you know the Democrats have all you know been elected, but I will see an appointment here. Um, from Governor Whitmer pretty shortly. So yeah, it kind of just depends on what the what the justices uh, are doing and you know whether whether they end their terms early. Uh, the McCormick term uh, was uh, intended to go for a, f- a few more years, so it was a, a little surprising to observers, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, she was expecting yeah. she could have gone all the way to 2029. Uh, but Lauren, I know you have to get out of here pretty soon. So uh, just to let you wrap up, what are you most looking forward to or, or what are you most keen eyed in on when it comes to the state Supreme Court moving forward? Um, I'm really interested to see the results of the November elections, frankly, um, you know, whether the the numbers remain the same, whether we'll still have a 4-3 court, whether that shifts at all. I think that's going to be a really, a really interesting dynamic and whether, um, you know, whether some of these nonpartisan races uh, are affected by some of the other things at the top of the ticket, whether that will be since they are nonpartisan, uh, they don't have the R's or D's next to their name, um, whether the parties will make a significant effort to uh, to indicate these are our choices yeah. <laughs> um, before voters uh, before voters get to the ballot there. Lauren, thanks for taking some time out of the morning to spend with us. I let you on to the rest of your day. Thank you so much. And uh, before, Take care, Lauren. Before we get to Frank, I know that, uh, Rick, you had another point you wanted to drop there, so go ahead. Oh, I mean, just uh, uh, really reinforcing what uh, Lauren said. It is really nice to be an incumbent, uh, in large part because voters don't have that R versus D guidance in terms of uh, you know making uh, you know making their decision. It's uh, 
it's certainly happened. But, uh, you know, if, if, if you're an incumbent um, Supreme Court justice on the ballot, you're pretty much a shoe in. Um, you know, one exception uh, would be uh, Democrats ran an ad calling Cliff Taylor, uh, who was also a chief justice, the uh, sleeping judge because they happened to uh, catch a, a, a screenshot or a picture of him sitting on the court, you know, right. leaning forward, listening with his, uh, you know, with his eyes closed. I remember it well as we move to Frank in yeah. Livonia. Frank, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Yeah, uh, good morning. Um, you know, I'm thinking like our, you know, the, the questions of today, uh, you know, it's like this internet and freedom of speech on social media and all these kinds of things. You know, so much of our justice system is based on press precedent and uh you know our you know the systems that we you know the justice systems were from literally the 17 18 1900s uh you know we need to do something different uh you know to answer these questions you can't just uh, you know apply things that uh you know from newspapers to the social media thing it's a different thing but i think that if we had like a farm system where if you wanted to be a judge You'd have to start out as a public defender and a prosecutor, and then you'd you know move up to magistrate, you know. And if you can, you know, if you stick, you know, stayed with it. But you know, I think what's really missing is, you know, a lot of these judges come from, you know, they come from Harvard and they come from big corporate law firms and stuff, and they don't really understand, you know, what it's like to be standing there, you know, with a dog bite right. on your hands and you know living in you know terror of a of uh, uh, dogs next door or something. And, and uh, you know, so, I mean, I think that, that you know, there, you could certainly it'd have to be like a constitutional type question that we can find our judges and we don't have to elect them. They don't have to be, they have to prove themselves and uh, you know, to make it up to higher levels of, um, of the uh, courts. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, uh, you know, you hear that a lot, Frank, and I leave that to you, uh, Rick. Uh, what do you know about in terms of uh, systems of maybe reforming uh, how we get justices and those types of things? Well, typically, not always, but uh, typically uh, Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, do have some record on the bench. Um, I mean, one of the complexities of um you know, running as a judge is you've got a or or, you know, anyone who's worked as an attorney is I mean, you've got a record, including a record of uh, clients that you've represented. And on the criminal side, certainly that everybody is entitled to an attorney. And that means attorneys will defend people who are found guilty or attorneys will defend people who have been charged with serious crimes, but are found innocent. And those are things that can be used against you in a campaign. And the same way on the civil side, if uh, you know, you've represented uh, paying clients who are big corporations, for example, um, you know, that will also get uh, used against you in a political campaign to try and paint a portrait of a candidate who's somehow or another beholden to a special interest. And I will say, by the way, that chief justices in particular, you know, typically find this just abhorrent because it paints a picture of the judiciary as something that that may not um, be entirely factual in terms of how judges decide cases. Obviously, we have a lot of judges and different ones handle their responsibilities in, in different ways. But, you know, the idea of candidates running and then engaging what can be a um, messy and mean political process doesn't always uh, inspire confidence uh, in the court. Yeah, yeah. Frank, I really appreciate you calling in with your points. And that means that we have another line open for you out there listening. What do you think of the U.S. Supreme Court or excuse me, the Michigan Supreme Court? Michigan See, I'm Court. I'm even doing it right. The Michigan State Supreme Court. Very significant institution here in Michigan. Give us a call. 313-577-1019. As we have a message from uh, Twitter, RZS. Could this uh, could this appointment affect the abortion issue on the ballot? Rick, the timing of this is a little strict. Uh, would this affect the abortion issue on the ballot? Not on the 
ballot, that the um, the Supreme Court has ruled that both of these questions will go on the ballot. Ballots are being printed, and it's the final word on what's on the ballot. The Supreme Court does have a pending question before it on whether or not the Michigan Constitution protects uh, abortion rights uh, following you know, the Dobbs decision, which uh, put it back on the state. Michigan does have a dormant uh, statute that uh, makes uh, providing abortion services a, uh, a crime. So that, that issue is still hanging out there. The Supreme Court to date, though, has hung back. And I think this is just me. Um, pretty much figuring that this is probably since the question is on the ballot and it is an amendment, a proposed amendment to the state constitution, that this ought to go to voters to decide or at least for voters to decide before the Supreme Court makes a determination on whether or not they'll even make a decision in the case. There's nothing there's nothing that says that uh, that they have to. Yeah, Rick, I think you're exactly right. If it's already up for the voters, let the voters decide and it might render a need to make a ruling on that moot, which would make well, that's sense. That's the Supreme Court, not me. Well, <laughs> Correct. Correct. But uh, I do believe that that is probably the strategy going on. But again, I don't have inside information there. Uh, We are speaking about Justice McCormick's decision to retire from or leave the bench, uh, leave the Michigan Supreme Court at the end of the year. And one of the things it brings into question is the makeup of the court. And if we look at the bench as it is right now, again, with four justices currently who were put up by Democrats, three that were put up by Republicans. Another thing you see is that on occasion we have have seen folks cross over, which I think, again, goes to the more collegial atmosphere that you mentioned, Rick. And Bridget McCormick's ability, as I've heard from other people, she knows how to count to three or count to four. She knows how to get to that majority on some of these opinions. And and we've seen things like the redistricting commission when it was even going to be a case of, hey, look, can the commission, uh, can we have an independent commission in here? And will the redistricting work, right? You had Republicans come on that vote with the Democrats to get that to pass. That was truly significant. Or a decision on can school districts legally ban guns on school property. Again, that was the decision that occurred when we were a 4-3 Republican majority, but two justices crossed over. Uh, Is there any insight into who could step into the role of chief justice and maybe have that ability also to get to the number and figure out how to get opinions that get the justices together, Rick? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think that uh, Elizabeth Welsh, who, you know, might uh, fit the bill, I want to be careful about pretending that, you know, I know what goes on in the, uh, you know, in the closed door conferences. Right. One of the, I, I think, stickier jobs of being a chief justice or, you know, in terms of trying to build majorities, and a, and a large majority is better than a uh, small majority, is the question of how <laughs> I, I'm trying to frame this correctly, as you can tell, how firmly you are going to stick to your principles All in right. a particular case is is a principled question in and of itself. And by that, what I mean is, how much are you going to compromise in order to reach a um, majority, a particularly a, a large majority, to give the public and to give the legal system a pretty solid idea of what the rules are going forward? That's that's a really, really big deal because you don't want a decision that, for example, has a lot of dissents and concurrences that maybe can be applied and applied relatively soon in a uh, in a in a controversial case that usually it's in everybody's interest for the law to be interpreted by the court in a way that is um decisive going forward so that people just know what the law is even if they're not enamored of the result and that's part of the job of a supreme court justice is to make sure that there's a firm affirmation of a position going so going forward so that there's just not 
this murkiness in how the law might be interpreted in the in the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to make it firm and asserted that I appreciate you, Rick Pluta, for joining us again here on Detroit Today. Always a pleasure speaking with you, especially when I get to talk about the Michigan State Supreme Court. Talk about it more. <laughs> it's it's great. It's fun. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating. Thanks for your time. Hey, you got to come back soon. All right. I'm glad to do it anytime. When we continue on Detroit Today, what is going on in Michigan State University? Looks like they're trying to push out their president. We'll check into it and find out a little bit more with David Jesse, higher education reporter at the Detroit Free Press, and you on Detroit Today as we continue. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, and so happy you are a part of this episode as well. It wasn't long ago that Larry Nassar's revealed actions and Michigan State University's lack of actions were top of mind for many Michigan residents. Nassar infamously sexually assaulted scores of gymnasts and is now in prison, serving effectively a life sentence. But the reputation of Michigan State University, which engaged in a cover-up, has taken a beating. Several people, including former university presidents Lou Anna Simon and John Engler, lost their jobs for their handling of the Larry Nassar sexual assault scandal and its fallout. Well, now another Michigan State University president is on the hot seat. The current president, Samuel Stanley Jr., has apparently lost the trust of at least some of the board of trustees who are now trying to get Stanley to leave his post. To talk about why Stanley is being pushed out, what he did wrong, and how Michigan State is trying to recover its image and rebuild after the Nasser years, we have Detroit Free Press higher education reporter David Jesse here with us. David, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. There appeared to be several complaints on hand, but uh, can you consolidate this for us? What are all the reasons that Samuel Stanley Jr. is on the hot seat? Well, I think the overarching problem with the board is a lack of trust in him. And it kind of stems from two areas. One, from the decision by the provost backed by Stanley to push out the business school dean over complaints that he did not um, report some sort of sexual misconduct as mandated. Uh, He's a mandated reporter. And then also some issues about certifying reports to the state, basically that say the president and the board have looked at Title IX reports um, the sexual misconduct investigations, and have reviewed them. Um, that's a law that was put in place after the Larry Nassar scandal that you, that you referenced to try to give some oversight. And there's some issue about whether Stanley certified that all these things had happened um, knowing that they hadn't happened, or did he know, did he not know? And so it's just this this mess, and I think overall there's a, a lack of tra- trust between some members of the board and uh, the president. And when that happens, that puts the president on a hot seat. Right, right. And uh, you mentioned two separate things there. So I want to start, I guess, with the first, uh, you know, at the center of the current controversy or what keeps coming up is Sanjay Gupta, the business school's former dean. Uh, Who is Sanjay and how specifically did Stanley handle that situation? Can Can you give us insight into what happened there? So for people who aren't familiar. Sure. So he's the, he was the dean of the of the business school, and in August, suddenly, kind of out of the blue, he resigned, and everyone, no one knew what was going on, and it came out that he had been pushed out by the provost. Um, there, Michigan State has some policies around um, who has to report 
to the Title IX office, to the Sexual Misconduct office, if they hear of some sort of issue. Um, and he's one of those people. Um, and allegedly, he heard something and didn't pass it on. And so um, the provost pushed him out um, with the backing of Stanley. The board heard about this at some point, and they decided that there were some issues in in that case's investigation. Um, they hired an outside law firm now to come in and to investigate whether um, the president and the provost uh, made the right decision and if what all was going on on there. There's still a lot of questions about exactly what happened there and the role of of the of the president in all of this. Yeah, and that brings me to the next point because the second thing you mentioned, and if you could give us a little, just a little bit of an overview on that, is him apparently failing to provide reports as required by law to the board of trustees. What's his requirement there, and how are they saying he failed to do it? So after Nasser, after the Nasser case, there was lots of complaints that the board didn't provide oversight and that they didn't know what was going on, and that was part of the cover up of 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 Nasser. Michigan State had had complaints, had cleared him, had had multiple complaints against him, and the administration had kind of brushed him aside. And the thought was that a board at any university should see reports so that they could offer, hey, this is the second time we've seen this guy's name come up. Can you inform us what's going on here, et cetera, et cetera. Look at the timeliness of response. And so in the state budget, there's a section called the boilerplate with a lot of different requirements in it. And one of those is that every year the president certifies, sent to the state a form that says, among other things, that they have provided reports uh, of all the sexual misconduct cases to the board. And that particularly in the case of any involving an employee, that a board member has at least one board member has reviewed all those reports. So Stanley signed, like every other university president in, in Michigan, and sent it into the state. Well, it turns out there's a question about whether board members actually did that review. And did Stanley know that it hadn't been done, um, that there hadn't been that review? There's There's no log or signatures or anything saying that the board had reviewed, so he didn't have any backup for his signature. So the question is, is that certification that he sent to the state false? Now, if you don't certify to the state that this had happened, you can lose 10% of your state aid. In Michigan State's case, that's about $28, $29 million, million. What we don't know is what if there was a false certification could the state come back and tell Michigan State we're taking you know thirty million dollars away from you? Um, so that obviously is some real financial pressure on on the university as well. Yeah. So David, hearing those two situations, this is the thing I want to square at its most simplistic. Right? They appear to be upset from the reporting with uh, him pushing out someone ahead of a you know of a of a college to for failing to report, and now apparently they're mad at him for failing to report. So they don't like that he pushed out somebody who failed to report, but also they want to push him out for failing to report. That seems to not square with me. Is there any distinction here that I'm missing with that? I mean, there are a lot of things going on there, but do you understand what I'm asking there? Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're I think you're right. There's so much of the situation that we that we don't know. And really, you know, we haven't heard from very many board members, so you know, we we just we just don't know. But I think it gets back to we started this discussion by by saying kind of the fundam, fundamental issue here is that the board doesn't trust Stanley and his process. Um, and so when that happens, that's a bad sign. It's a bad sign when my boss, right, doesn't trust me. That's not good. That's not good. <laughs> right. It's time for me to start thinking about, well, maybe it's uh, maybe it's time to update the resume. Um, you know, and so it's the same with the it's the same with the board, and it's just magnified at a university when you're talking about a university president who's obviously a major public figure gets a million dollars a year in salary, and then you know you have a board that are politicians that are elected, yeah, you know? and so all that is in this in this in this mix as well, and then you got to put in the context of as you said in your introduction, they're coming out of the Larry Nasser stuff, and so stuff around reporting and. Did, 
people report or not report, you know, that that that's a very sensitive issue there, yeah. maybe more so than at other places. Yeah. 313-577-1019 is the phone number if you want to get in on the conversation. What do you make of the recent scandal unfolding at Michigan State University? Is it even a scandal? Is this much ado about nothing? Are there significant issues here? Do you have an opinion on that? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. I want to get back to you, though, David, because you know, ever since Game of Thrones ended, I think I needed a little bit more palace <laughs> intrigue in my life this seems to be a lot of that with you have a leak of oh he's on the hot seat he's going to be pushed out but then the reporting comes out you have a member of the board of trustees actually saying no i don't know why people are trying to push him out with these leaks it's really interesting it's very fascinating a lot of palace intrigue but really how much does this matter to the people of michigan i can hear residents saying hey look he messed up there's something in the legislation or the, there's by uh, law, you know, 10 percent fine. If it's true, let the investigation happen. Why? Why? Why is this such a big deal right now? Can you can you explain that for me, David? Yeah, I think it's a big deal if you're just an average taxpayer in, in Michigan um, is you have to think about the place Michigan State holds in, in the state. You know, it's the it's one of the largest schools. It's got a massive alumni base. It, it's you know we're talking about agricultural importance. You know, in lots of areas, yeah. um, research, right? And so this is this is a major institution of the of the state. And when it's in turmoil, right? And so for the last three days, the faculty and the students and the staff have spent a lot of time trying to figure out who the boss is, what the direction is, and are, is the board in charge or is Stanley in charge? Or are they fight? Are they rowing together? Are they fighting against each other? When you start getting that instability, now you start thinking: Okay, is Michigan State functioning the way Michigan needs it to function? Um, not only for its students, but kind of all these other offshoots. You know, when it comes to their their extension programs that are so vital to agriculture, or their teacher college, or you know, name the you know the inventions coming out of out of the engineering school, or you know, all that stuff. And so, the stability to these big places are very important in that way. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the board of trustees, uh, you know, how many are there? What? Are there responsibilities, and do we know how many are for versus against uh, the president right now? Sure. There's eight board members. Um, they're all elected in a statewide vote. They're at the bottom of your ballot. Uh, there's two two seats open this uh, November. They're elected to eight-year terms. Um, we know two board members, Diane Byram and Melanie Foster, have come out and said that they believe Stanley should stay. Um, we have another board member, Rima Vassar, who's come out and said um, that she is not. She has a lack of trust in the president and has not felt that trust since she started on the board about a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, and then you have this group in the middle that have been playing coy and haven't haven't really said anything. So it's hard to know exactly where they stand. Is there any consistency with the political makeup of those that are uh, for his uh, retainment? No, Diane Byron's a, a Democrat. Melanie Foster's a Republican. Um, you know, so uh, it doesn't appear that it's a, any type of party uh, party issue. Right. But if the Board of Trustees wants them out and they get a majority, they can get them out. Is that correct? Sure. They can fire, right? According to his contract, they can fire him. Um, you know, if they fire him... Um, if they fire him with cause, you know he doesn't get he doesn't get paid anymore. Um, if he retires, though, and this is the deal they offered him, hey, retire, and according to his contract, he gets a year's salary, so that's nine hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, and just to get some context again, um, is there any understanding of what the uh, system or how the state the university has been working uh, since his time? in tenure versus what it was like before? Uh, has there been a change, more stability, problems retained? Uh, what do we know about that change? It, it, it appears that it's been, been more stable. It's certainly been a lot quieter. Um, you know, he has uh, come in and kind of stabilized the system. Um, you know, he has not certainly uh, had, the, had the issues, the public um, 
issues that his predecessors had, and so there was that perception um, that he had that he had done a, a good job of kind of returning it to. Um, to pre-Nasser stableness. Yeah. We're speaking with David Jesse, a higher education reporter for the Detroit Free Press. You can get involved as well, 313-577-1019. But David, since you are a higher education reporter, Michigan State's not the only university going through some news recently in terms of higher education. We've also got the situation in Eastern Michigan University where professors went on strike. A lawsuit was filed saying they couldn't go on strike. And instead of a protracted uh, labor dispute, dispute, it looks like they came to a resolution. Can you tell us what was at issue there and how that ended up resolving at Eastern Michigan? Sure. The, the two main issues between, between Eastern's faculty and administration really came down to, to money. There were issues around salary, how much the professors should be paid, what type of pay increase they should have. And then the really big issue was, like for many people, Healthcare and healthcare costs, and how much um, should the faculty pay towards their healthcare, and how much should the administration, the university, pay towards that? And at the beginning, there was a, a wide golf. Obviously, uh, late Sunday night, I think they sent the press release out about. 11.55 p.m., they managed to come to some sort of agreement. And we're still waiting to see what those details are and where that all shook out. All right, very good. And in terms of uh, the labor dispute, do we understand if there's going to be any, do we expect to see any long-term uh, ramifications or fallout, not only just at Eastern University, Eastern Michigan University, but perhaps other institutions across the state? Well, I think we've seen it at Eastern. We saw it a bit at Western Michigan. You know, a number of these schools are really struggling in terms of enrollment. Um, you know, there's just uh, there's a demographic issue here in Michigan. There's just fewer kids graduating from high school each year. Um, and so there's a smaller pool of college students. And so as their enrollment shrinks, that means their schools aren't getting the tuition dollars into their bank accounts, which means they're making cuts, they're looking for savings. And that's just naturally going to kind of set the university off against, you know, faculty uh, and faculty unions who don't want to see cut pay cuts and health care cuts. And so I would anticipate that some sort of dispute will be more common around the around the state in the next uh, the next several years. Right. We got about a minute left uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of the time that we have here. I'm going to be looking into what's going on with higher education. And so we're going to have to have you back on that because it's becoming an interesting issue. Thanks so much for your time, David Jesse. Anytime. This has been Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. The show is produced by Sam Corey and me. I help produce this. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Tune in tomorrow when we discuss the Detroit Auto Show, coming back for live in-person events and how the automotive industry is changing in the city, state, and country when Stephen Henderson returns.